All right, Jacob, have a question. I've been kind of doing some training today, and one of the things that came up was uh, motivating and retaining learners. Do you think that that's a problem? And if so, what do you do about it? Motivating and retaining. Can I ask a clarifying question before I answer the question? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go so ahead. What, what, what do we mean by retain? Like, I get motivating, but what, what do we mean by, like, is our kids just walking out of the class? Or <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Well, you know, like, in you know, we just got finished with COVID, right? We had all that online. Mm-hmm. And, of course, half of our world is still online. So, definitely, it was hard to retain people online. You know, like, kids would just not show up. They just really would not show up. But you in the classroom, I've got kids that sometimes will... Um, they just tune out, you know, they're just not really with, they're not really engaging. Or when I taught in high school, I really felt like if you couldn't get them uh, turned on to school by ninth grade, you probably weren't going to keep them and they were going to walk out. So uh, drop out. So how do you retain learners, keep them learning with you? You know, cause sometimes they can just zone out and not, I mean, be present. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. And there's, uh, it's, there's probably, as many different answers as there is um, students, right? Uh, I would say that, I mean, I, I honestly, I, I mean, if we're really talking about this, I, in terms of retention, I have found that if you are allowing students and giving them the freedom to really interact with text to pursue the thinking that they would like to pursue, if you are really allowing them to be empowered in their learning, um, then they, they're already, that, that creates the engagement right there, right? You're, you're, you're engaging them into it because they are a part of it. You are not handing something to them and saying, interact with this. You're inviting them into it. And you're saying, here's this really cool thing. What do you think about it? And when you do that over and over again, Especially if you are talking with your students and interacting with your students, what eventually happens, you end up giving each of them something that they can interact with in a way that's meaningful. And so that that engagement piece becomes the core, right? I've talked about this on the podcast a few times, which is as I developed as an educator, it became less about creating really you know, hype lessons and all this energy and whatnot, which that's still present because it's me, but it it became less about that and more about finding stuff that kids could really engage with on multiple levels. So I get that engagement piece. And then I think if you're really doing that and if kids really do own what they're doing, if they're not just writing for writing assignments, if they're not just reading for reading assignments and they're being able to interact with this and they they're starting to learn how to independently pursue where they want to go. I think the retention's already there because they're becoming independent learners. You know, in in education, we have a million buzzwords. One of the big buzzwords is, you know, becoming independent learners. Students should own their learning. Well, if you're really doing that in your classroom, I think the retention stays. Now, that doesn't mean kids are going to be engaged 100% of the time. I've, you know, I had this kids for the 2 years. Some of the kids that I had in the first year were different in the second year and they weren't as engaged with school necessarily, but that doesn't mean that they weren't still learning just because they're not, just kids are not always, you know, 
the A plus student and the, the kid that's always getting stuff done doesn't mean there, there's not that retention because reading and writing is something you can do independently, something you can do at home. It's, it's a life skill. It applies to everything you do. So if, we, if we're creating environments where kids can authentically pursue their thinking, authentically go into the learning of the classroom in, in the ways that they need to and have that freedom, then I, I think that they're going to re, they're going to have that retention built into what they do because they, they control it. And I don't know. In my experience, that that that's the difference maker. All right. Well, with that, welcome to Craft and Draft. I'm Pam Ochoa. That's Jacob Chastain. And what are we talking about today, Jacob? I think we're going to be talking about something that might include motivation. What is it today? Talking about does freedom lower the rigorousness? Does it lower the rigor of the classroom? Um, You know, I... I, I I try to keep my you know my my thumb on the pulse of education, and I try to listen to what's being said indirectly and directly. And there's a lot of places I go for that. Um, but one of the things that I keep seeing is, especially in, in places that are negative about education, right? They, they might be non-teachers, they might be parents, they might be people that support homeschooling over public education because they hate public education. Not people that choose homeschooling because they can do it and, you know, they see it as value, but people that are like, this is an ideological choice. that I'm, I'm, I'm removing them out of this system that I don't believe in. But a lot of the common threads about education is that it's being dumbed down um, because of all of this effort to you know, kind of meet kids where they are. This is in turn lowering the rigor of the classroom. And uh, English is where so many people have certain beliefs about what is rigorous and what is not um, that I figured that'd be a fun conversation with uh, freedom and whatnot. So I guess we're going to explore that together. You know that freedom is important to me as well. So I, I like I like my autonomy. I think I've said that more than once. I so mean, personally, I I like autonomy. I like trying to figure things out in my own way. Um, I don't like being told how to do it, to be honest. I mean, sometimes I need that, but I just need some guidelines and then let me try to figure it out. So that's personally, to me, I think that includes rigor, doesn't it? I mean, if you're trying to figure, if you give students enough freedom or open-endedness, if you will, that they've got to solve the problem themselves, and I'm just going to guide them through the process, then I think, to me, I think that raises the rigor, doesn't it? Well, I think that's the interesting question, right? Because mm-hmm. I think, so let, let's start from a perspective of what people consider rigorous. What would you say someone considers like the average person when you say what makes a challenging classroom in in an English classroom? What makes a challenging English classroom? What do you think like the average person would say? Okay. Um, No training background, like just someone off the street. If we went and polled a hundred people, what would they say? What, what makes a challenging English classroom? Probably grammar and lots of practice. 
making sure they have all their assignments turned in. Um, yeah, making sure that the reading that you, uh huh, and making sure that the reading that you select is uh, challenging and difficult to try to manage, and it's got multiple uh, plots. So therefore, uh, it, it's it's kind of a rigged situation to even try to follow the text. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Tell me. Well, that's the interesting thing, right? So I think I think all of this is true. I think there is. Um, I think uh, people think rigorousness, like especially in writing, right? Is this well? If you if you don't explicitly teach grammar, you're lowering the rigor of the English classroom. If you're not holding kids to um, a high standard of uh, what an essay should look like, for instance, then you are lowering the rigor of the classroom. You know, it's it's that people see it as um, we're we're by removing quote unquote barriers. It's those barriers that are caused uh, by rigor. I saw a funny tweet. I wish I could say who it was, but they said, it was kind of a quote tweet. Um, you know, which is why we take like a, something that someone says and you quote it and then tweet it ob- above it. But they, uh, it was, someone was talking about how if they don't put their name on a paper or whatever, then they automatically lose points. And the, the person who quote tweeted it is kind of snarky, but they said it, it's people like this who also say that they run a rigorous classroom. <laughs> Just, I just, and you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of, you know, it's poking fun at the person, which I, you know, I try not to do on social media, but I think the, the sentiment of what we're talking about here is true in the sense that, you know, I think that a lot of this high standards, so to speak, when we, you know, when people are like, well, we need high expectations, you know, it's one of those words that sounds wonderful, but high expectations can sometimes I feel like get lost in like this muddy water of, okay, so what's really high expectations? So for instance, is a kid always formatting their papers perfect with the perfect heading, the name and date? Is that setting high expectations or, and are we lowering it by not paying attention to stuff like that? Let's start there. Let's start at like the very basics. Is that something you would consider a part of high expectations or is that something else? Well, I, you just made me think of my junior theme. Golly, you know, we had to hand, we had to type it, type it, and I hadn't had typing yet, and so we had to have, you know, and we didn't have like a word processor that already did the tabs. So you had to figure out the tabs. He actually took a, a ruler and measured to make sure that our tabs were exactly the inches that they needed to be. Our footnotes needed to be at a certain space. And and the actual assignment became not about what I thought in the writing, which I did quite a bit of research and I learned a lot, but I got graded on my typing ability, which really was terrible at the time. I had I wasn't very good. So anyway, I got a C on the paper. However, on the rough draft where I turned it in by hand, because I had to turn it in by hand first before I typed it, I got an A on the content, but that counted as a daily grade. The test grade was the typed paper, which I got a C on because 
Apparently, I didn't do my end notes, my footnotes correctly, because I didn't have the right space. He actually got a ruler out. And, and the reason I know that is because four years later, my brother has him, and he pulls up my paper as not how to type it. I was an example of what not to do when you type. Always so beautiful. there you go. So what did I learn? I didn't really learn how to type that much. I mean, I really learned all that in, in college because, you know, it really was important. But I guess, but was it? I don't know. The rigor, it was rigorous because I got my C. So that made it rigorous. It's graded hard. <laughs> my so, daily grade was my content. I, I don't know. What, what message is that? I think this is I hated writing. This is yeah, exactly. So this is kind of this is the fun point that and this is hard to do by the way. Like I've been I have expressed my disdain for Twitter in several parts, but I keep going back to it. It's like an abusive relationship. It's cause it's, it's, it's fascinating because I get so many things I want to talk about. And I, I, the reason I love podcasting is because we can do this for an hour, 45 minutes, 30 minutes or whatever. And we can kind of meander through topics, right? But in Twitter, like it's so snapshot and it's so whatever. And the, the game that you're playing for social media is, is a strange. So when I've been wanting to participate in these conversations, but I felt like I was like, well, we can't even have the conversation unless we start defining what on earth high expectations look like anyway. And I, I think this is something that for, for people that are pushing, um, for people that are pushing uh, ideas, concepts like we are, such as workshop, freedom, choice, I feel like this gets a lot of negative rap from people that see that as it's just losing rigor. You know, I, I think a good example is in reading, right? It's like, well, why would you – oh, kids can just choose whatever they read. Okay, so when are they going to read the hard books, right? When are they going to contend with great American literature? And, uh, you know, when are they going to, I did that in school, you know, I read Hamlet, but now they don't read Hamlet. They just read YA romance stories all the time. And, you know, I, I understand where that comes from, but I, you know, I just want to explore well, before we go into the obvious side that you and I kind of stay on, do you think there's a justification for the fear of choice and freedom being um, less rigorous? Like, so in, in other words, is there a way to do choice and freedom in a way that is what they say it is? It is less rigorous. It, there's less learning happening. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. That's the short and long of it right there. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, there you go. I, we don't need to explain. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so, okay, we got it, right? Yes, there is yeah. a bad way to do this. So there is um, – there. there's the fears of what some of these things can mean towards learning definitely can – uh, be a part of that because it can be done yeah. wrong, but the other stuff can also be done wrong too. I think people can, um, I had a friend on Twitter who I've met since Matthew Ryan. He came on my podcast 
on Teach Me Teacher, and we talked about teaching the canon, right? Uh, my views on the canon are well documented in my time on the internet. Um, but I brought him on because I appreciated his arguments. I appreciated the way he made them. And I just thought he was a nice guy. And I was like, you know what? I, I want to get another perspective. I want to hear someone talk about the canon. And you know what? He, I think he does it in a great way. He incorporates diverse authors. He dives deep into it, but he also, I mean, he, he works at a Catholic private school, so there is a difference of worlds there a little bit. Um, but he, you know, they read like 10 to 14, if he's listening to this, he's going to correct me, but like 10 to 14, like really great novels a year as a class. And that is, so it's like whole group as a class, but the way he structures it and he does his, his dialogue and di- dives into it. I really do think like, if you're going to do it that way, his way is probably something that people should model, but at the same time, so that that's like, so I can say whole group novel reading just the classics or whatever. He doesn't read just the classics, but reading just, you know, the, the canon is, is bad, but at the same time, people can do it well. There are, there are no a hundred percent right answers in teaching. So putting that out there, um, shifting towards freedom, how have, could I mean, just off the top of your head, have you thought, like, can you imagine something that you've seen where students were quote unquote given freedom and it just wasn't going well? Maybe it was your class or a class that you've seen. Like, do you have an example of this? Well, I, you know, I've seen a lot of classes over the years and, and I've probably have also done it. And that is you give them freedom and, uh, but without guidelines. So what ends up happening is there's no focus, no learning being done. And, and I think that's what our principals and other, other teachers who don't want to go down that road, they're, it's, they're afraid of it. And what happens is they, they pick books. I mean, what about the child that never moves to another genre? They stay, uh, they go over there and they pick uh, the book that has the most pictures on it. And that's what they do. And then they pick the next book that has the most pictures on it. But they never grow. They they never, you don't even see it in their test scores. It just, they just stay the same. If you don't intervene in something like that and try to encourage them to read the next thing, then um, then yeah, I think I think too much freedom can be a problem. I, I have been accused um, of being uh uh, the odd man out by allowing too much freedom. Uh, so I, I've been misinterpreted uh, by others who are that strict person that you're talking about. Uh, learning is not being done in your room, Ms. Ochoa. Well, it actually is. And I can put my kids up against your kids anytime and they can, and actually did. And they won. So, you know, those kinds of things have happened, but uh, there's a, there's a technique about freedom and being the facilitator of that, uh, there's a lot of, um, I, I guess, accountability on the teacher uh, to guide the students in such a way that growth happens. And and I think it's the way we do the pre-planning of our lessons that make it work out. So, but yeah, I can I can have have them do whatever they want all day long if they only write free writing and that's all they do is write, but we never go back into the writing. But every day we write about something, there is going to be some growth. 
even in doing that, there's going to be some growth, even if they get to choose whatever they read. But we might not have a year's growth. We may not have the growth that we want, and we might not even know what that growth is. And I think that's where the problem lies. Um, as a teacher, if you let them just do whatever, you're probably going to get something, but there's no way to measure it. So I think that I think you have to do it in a way that it can be measured. I think it needs to be sustainable, and I think it needs to be authentic. And and I think um, it's not easy to do, and and I think people are afraid of it, and so therefore, no choice, no freedom. I'm going to tell them what to do because I'm in control, and it's because they're afraid to lose control, and they're afraid of the the perception that's out there about allowing this autonomy that you and I are talking about. I don't know if that cleared it up or made it worse. No, I that's mean, my I long, think... that's my long answer. Yes. Is my short answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I think a lot of it, uh, you know, th- this goes back to kind of the early conversations you had, you and I had when we were even just figuring out how workshop how we could help people embrace kind of the workshop model because the, it's something that's been talked about for a long time, but it's still not as ubiquitous as, you know, I feel like it should be. And it, I think a lot of it comes from there is a fear to freedom because, you know, on one hand you have people that think kids are dumb. I mean, let's just put it out there. I mean, not everyone, I think that's a small percentage, but there's a lot of people who just don't trust kids to make quality decisions. Oh yeah. I've had, I've had teachers actually say, but Pam, you don't understand the kind of kids that we have. And it's like a kid's a kid. So yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Or, you know, the veiled kind of attack on, you know, the, the community and they, you know, they say, well, mm-hmm. th- you know, these kids won't do that. You know, these kids, you know, they just mm-hmm. have never seen books really. So they're not going to read and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So there's definitely that. I think that's a small percentage, but th- those people exist. I, and then I think there's kind of like the, I think the majority of people, um, they, they just don't, in their brains, they, they just don't see the connection between how you can guide uh, a kid with their while they're choosing, but you can still guide them based on the standards, based on the curriculum, and based on what goals need to happen. And I think part of this comes from re-envisioning what the role of the teacher is. And this is hard to do because we've all come through the same educational system. We've all sat in relatively similar classrooms. We've all had relatively same pedagogical methods kind of uh, pushed on us in order to learn something. And quite frankly, a lot of the college prep courses still kind of teach the same stuff. You know, some of them are different. Like, for instance, like my wife, uh, when she was getting her degree, her teachers were fantastic. You know, they even, some of them even spoke at ILA and, you know, they just, they had great philosophies and and were very good from what I could tell. Um, But there's, you know, I hear stories from all over the place of where people were just kind of given, you know, here's Harry Wong and, you know, (laughs) here's, you know, just kind of like the same stuff that everyone's been shown before. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, it's hard to come out of a traditional education model and then, have someone say, oh, yeah, just, you know, let them self-select and then guide them through that. It's like, what on earth? What does that even look like? So I, I think that's that's a key piece to this. Um, mm-hmm. But – and then I think there's a, a pressure from admin. You know, we live in uh, and operate, most of us, in a system 
that is overly obsessed with quantitative data rather than qualitative data. We love something that can be reduced to numbers. It's the way the system is designed. It's the way the majority of tests are designed. Um, it's what principals push because the districts push them. It, you know, it's all of that. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying we're overly obsessed with it as a system. Right. So it, it, it becomes all we talk about. So all of that, I think, creates a perfect storm of people being wary of giving choice. But I think what you and I have both discovered at different times in our careers and what we keep discovering, I think, over and over again is that choice is far more rigorous than no choice. Because what you're teaching a kid when they're allowed freedom is you're teaching them how to make good decisions and how to sustain those decisions. And better yet, how to know when they've made a bad decision in something, how to know that they picked Mm -hmm. up a book that is not right for them. How do they know that they're starting a piece and it's not working? All of that is valuable information to know as a learner, but we tend to want to rob that part away from them and, and be that corrector for them. And I think this is where that the, the kind of, the burnout of teachers get sometimes in English is because there's so much to correct. It's like, why are you correcting? Let them go on this kind of self-discovery process and ask them, is this working? And if they don't know if it's working or not, then as the educator, you need to show them models that start shaping their brain into knowing what works and what doesn't work. What is a quality piece? What does a good sentence look like? What does it mean to have a book that is right for you? And I think that, I mean, everything I just listed there, those are all so complex. And I (laughs) like, and that's, I think the, that's why this is the, the conversation about rigor. I think it is a part of this, but I think people, I think this conversation doesn't happen a lot because it is complex. You're, you're looking at papers over there. It looks like you got something you're brewing. Uh, so what are you planning over there? I feel like you got, no, I'm not planning. I'm just, I'm just looking at what you're saying. And I found it in my notes because I told you I had training today, but what you're describing from here looks like it's the constructivist. Uh, you're looking at um, the constructivist theorists. So, I mean, Dewey, Bruner, Piaget, they all supported that, actually. And then when you're looking at Roger Mas- uh, Maslow, when he was talking about safe environment, one of the things he talked about is in order to motivate students, they need to have the choice and freedom to learn. Uh, they need to be able to pick their forms. They need to be able to uh, think about their learning. So, I mean, I think what you're talking about is actually supported in theory. And I think um, I think that's kind of fascinating. I looked down and you were talking about all that. And now I looked down and there it was. I was like, oh, my gosh, here he is talking about that. So, um, yeah, I think um, I was just looking at, at some of the notes that I had taken. And it sounds like that's what we're talking about. Uh, but what it was, what my notes are about, and that's what I was talking about today, is I had some training that dealt with motivation and so they were looking at how these behaviors uh, or these theories support the idea of, of motivating. And it said that the, the more choice that a student has, and uh, it has a direct impact on, on retention when they have to actually uh, check their work, uh, reflect on their own learning, uh, 
anyway, I thought it was kind of fascinating. And then they, and then when they share, so when you're looking at led by Gotsky and, and his cognitive processes on how, how you, when you work with others, that helps solidify uh, the learning. So I thought it was kind of you know, like when you share your products with others, you have to uh, justify what you're doing. Uh, you have to like, not just finding your own problems, like you talked about earlier, but explaining why that solution is the best solution that you can find. And so I just found, I just looked down and it was there. So uh, I was looking at that. So I think what you're saying really is supported by the constructivist theorist. You know, what's so funny is we, in, in kind of the debates that I've been seeing or just conversations or complaints about education is this, uh, the, you know, this, this dumbing down, they feel like the curriculum has been dumbed down, that the standards have been dumbed down, that the expectations have been dumbed down. And I feel like it's a misrepresentation of the way education has been moving. You know, education has by and large, and you know, I'm painting with broad strokes here. Okay. There's, 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 there's a lot of differences abound in the educational system in America, but I think in, in the general push of education, it, it has been this push to understand and realize those things to where it's, it's not just here's the work. Now go do the work and turn in the work. And then I'm going to hand you back for corrections. I think that's a very, uh, I think that's a less rigorous approach because you, how many things are, is the teacher doing there? The teacher's creating the assignment. The teacher's assigning the assignment. The teacher is maintaining the assignment. And the teacher is grading the assignment to hand back the corrections so they can grade it again later, right? That is all the learning and all the effort is being thrown onto the educator. We don't need, well, go ahead. No, keep going. I'll just say like, I had a great academic coach. He said, you know, you don't need more practice grading. So why are you grading everything kids are doing? Like, why, (laughs) why are you doing this? That is not, you're not a professional grader. You're a teacher. Now there are things to be graded and there's times to do that, but you are not a professional grader. So there, there's no reason to do that, but we don't, we, in, in terms of like assignments, we have the beauty in English class to where, you know, it's like, oh my God, I have to think of another prompt to give my kids so that they can write another paper. And so they can write another essay. And oh my God, I have to take home 150 essays this weekend and grade them all. So kids will know what errors they have. I mean, how much work is the teacher really doing versus the students? I think that's a great question in terms of, is it rigorous or not? Well, I don't know. Is the kid doing more work than me or not? Because <laughs> if they're right. doing less work, then I, I would argue that what we're doing is not rigorous at all. Right. And I, w- I would say the, the most work that we should be doing is before and after the lesson. But during that lesson, the student needs to be doing the work. You're right. Uh, I was, when, when you said, go ahead, um, while you were talking, I was thinking, well, you know, to think about it before I started this workshop approach and I did the practice grammar, I, I really did learn my grammar best when I actually graded all those grammar assignments. I mean, that's how I learned my grammar. I mean, I know I took grammar lessons and I did all that, you know, but you know, I really learned it when I actually 
Uh, so, but I don't think my kids learned it, and that's that's the deal. But I did, so I, I was just that thought popped into my head while you were while you were talking because I thought, oh yeah, well, that's probably when I did learn my grammar was when I was having to uh, grade all those things. So it was kind of interesting when you that you said that. Well, and I I don't know. I think a lot of uh, when when we're talking about the the conversation of rigor. And, and how freedom works into that, you know, specifically in writing, you know, I'm in edits of, you know, rightfully empowered and, you know, I spend, I was telling you this off air, but I spent two hours editing one paragraph that <laughs> has been written for a while and I really liked it. But then, you know, based on some feedback and some from the editor, I was like, okay, so this should be revised. And it just took so long. There were so many things I needed to take into account. I had to take in the tone who's the audience that's going to be seeing this first? This is the first paragraph. It has to be clean and direct and kind of in my style, which is kind of in your face. Like that's, I, I want, I like the, the books that I write to be a little bit more, you know, just a little bit more filled with some energy, you know, it's not just a typical PD book. And those are the books that I kind of gravitate to as well. So I, I want that it has to match the tone, but it also has to set the stage that first paragraph and these first sentences need to inform the writer immediately about everything I'm going to talk about through this book. Maybe not every single thing, but the broad strokes of what I'm going to talk about. And that process is so detailed and there's so many metacognitive process that, that are going on inside my brain. And I'm thinking of structure. I'm thinking of word choice. I'm thinking of audience. I'm thinking of purpose. I'm thinking of the meaning of words, right? I, I put out a tweet the other day that said, I feel like revision is 90% just Googling words to find out if they mean what you thought they meant when you wrote them. <laughs> and I do that. I mean, it's just me doing it all the time, but that is the work. Like, cause I'm doing it myself. I am now becoming, you know, I be, I feel like I graduated as a writer when I wrote teach me teacher, because, you know, going through that whole process and doing that, I was like, wow, I'm a way better writer when I did this. And now doing this one, I'm like, Oh, I'm even better of a writer now because I may, I didn't make as many mistakes. I made different mistakes. Right. And that process though, that's the messiness of learning of, of kids actually grappling with what we want them to do. And I feel like in terms, in, in a, in a good well-intentioned attempt to be rigorous, we, rather than grappling with that process because it's messy and it takes a lot of time and it means your kids are not going to be in the same spot, which is, oh my God, if you don't have the structure built in to allow kids to be in different places at once, then you're, I mean, it's going to implode and make you feel like you have anxiety. So in order to create rigor, we say, well, this is due this day. And if it's not due, you know what? You get half points or you get 10 points taken off. Mm-hmm. And if you can make those points back if you come to tutorials, right? And so we go this route. And I would almost claim, and I say almost because this is me thinking on my feet here, but I would almost claim that stuff like that is what I would call artificial rigor. It, it is rigor that is artificially created for the sake of doing it rather than actually diving into practices that do take more of a mental effort, that do pull more out of the learner and create longer lasting learning. I don't know. Am I being too harsh on deadlines and grades and the so-called accountability of English classrooms? 
No, I mean, I don't think so. I think I, I liked your term, artificial rigor. I think you need to probably coin that real quick. But anyway, you might have you, unless you heard Book it from three. someone else. Book three. Book three, artificial rigor. I can't believe you said that out loud. But anyway, okay. So I'm kidding. So, um, yeah, I do think we do put artificial rigor and it celebrates ourselves. It edifies the teacher, not the student. And I think we have to, to, um, I I think we have to watch that. Uh, Something that I wanted to kind of come back with what I caught you saying about your, you said you worked how long on that, that paragraph or two paragraphs? About two hours. About two hours. So, and that was a paragraph, right? Two paragraphs or, you know, two paragraphs. Yeah. Well, really, it was like one paragraph. (laughs) Okay. But for our students, it would be at least two, two, right? Because you showed it to me, so at least two for our students as far as the... the yeah, it's pretty long. It's like a page, wasn't it? It's about a page, mm-hmm. probably. So anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is you spent a lot of time on something that was meaningful to you because it's your choice, and you're about to show it to somebody that is important, right? You're trying to... You have an, a true audience that you want to reach with your words, and I think... Because of those parameters that you've put upon yourself by getting this published, right? Putting yourself at the hands of these editors, you're willing to put in the hours and the work. So I think the secret is in our classes, I have seen students do that. I've seen students write, I mean, books. Uh, literally, I, I when we were leaving this last year, I had a student was, and she listens to our podcast sometimes, by the way, but she was like, look, Ms. Ochoa, and she had already written like uh, 20 pages on her own because of some kind of assignment we did, but she decided she knew who she wanted to to send it to. So because of that, she put in all of this work. I didn't ask her to do the work. I just asked her for the first page, but she turned that into all of this work. And she's so proud of it. And I think it's because she figured out a real meaningful thing that she wants to do, a a person that she wants to read this. And she's found an idea for an audience. She, We kind of looked at some places she could even publish or stuff like that. So she's got, she's even looked and figured out who she wants to send it to. Now, because of that, guess what she did? She was motivated to keep learning. It was her choice. It was her topic. It was her thing. I just asked her to write about something and made it open-ended, but made it in a way that she actually created her ideas. She chose an idea from her own list. And then now she's, she's, I I don't know, of course, I haven't seen her all summer, but before we left in that six weeks, at the end, when we were closing up, she had written more than she had written all year. It's like all of a sudden the lights clicked on and she just, I mean, she was prolific all of a sudden and it was good work. It wasn't, it was good work. And so she put in a lot of time on that and she put in a lot of time before and after school and during her writing times. And I let her do it and think about all the problems she was solving. I mean, think about the volume that she created. And then not only that, it was a story. So she had to put her characters. She was taking everything we had learned that whole year about characters and, you know, and it started from modeling and coming up with some ideas for writing stories. I don't know. I guess my point is that um, if it's meaningful work, right, 
then meaningful work typically comes from the person who wants to do the work. Me telling them what to do is not really all that meaningful. Does that make sense? So what I want to do as a teacher, my work before their work is how can I look at the standards? Because, you know, you know, we always have to go with the standards. We always have to go with our, I mean, that's what we're supposed to do, right? So you go with the standard, you look at the rigor level that's expected from that standard. That's where you start from. But I don't ever stop a kid if they want to go higher than that. But I also look to see, okay, this is where I wanted them to be. This is what they're doing. Is it at the level of the rigor that's expected from this standard? And if it's not, then I need to figure out a way to do it. So my pre-work is how do I use my standard to create work for the students open enough for them to choose and become meaningful for them? And I try to... I try to walk them down this little journey, if you will. Uh, and each each student will have a different road on their journey because they've chosen their piece. And I'm more like the hub, if you will. And I'm helping you here and I'm helping you there and all of that. And, uh, you know, it, it's taken me a long time to get there. And I'm, I'm not, you know, perfect, but... I, boy, I do have students that do a lot of work that I've not asked them to do. Well, and I think connected to that, I think this is an important thing to add to this. I'm glad you brought it up, but is I think the difference and the difference that we kind of preach just in our approach with craft and draft is their freedom. I don't remember who said it, but freedom with, I think it was Kim Yates. No, Kim Yaris. Maybe. I think she said it on my podcast with her, but she said freedom, ultimate freedom is no freedom at all because it's just going to clog you up, right? It's there's it for kids. It's, it's too much. But, um, so what we try to do is, you know, if our goal is, you know, we start with our standards because that's the way our school works, where our district works, we start with that. But then part of that freedom is asking yourself as the teacher, how do I give them the tools necessary to do what they need to do? And for me, I take a really wide approach. I'm like, you know, I, we, there's pieces that students have to write, so to speak, but we also have the freedom to where, you know, I don't necessarily need to follow that to a T. So I start like in sixth grade, one of my big things was, okay, I need to get kids to be able to focus on a single thing and to be able to extrapolate in on that single thing. So a lot of my early time was spent, uh, figuring out how to, okay, what's the main idea of what we're reading and then translating that into their writing and then slowly showing them, okay, so how do you take an idea and start expanding upon it? And how do you know if that idea is bad? Like it can't be expanded upon as long as you need or want to. And so that's a lot of my work there, but I had to constantly ask myself, okay, so I need or want, or, you know, whatever is driving my teaching. I need them here by this time. What tools do I need to give them so that they can then go off and do it on their own and according to their choice and their freedom. So it's freedom, but it's also supported by the teacher. And then to add to that, 
is that goal setting, right? I think that is, that was like one of the big light moments for me in independent reading was, you know, we, I had, you know, administrators, coaches, district people that were like, you're just letting kids read You're Oh my God, there's so much time being wasted, letting kids read books. And one of the small tweaks I did is we just started setting goals next to what we were learning that week or that day. And that goal setting, it became that next level that I needed to kind of not just show that kids were actually learning and practicing what we were talking about, but really take the the pure freedom of what we're trying to offer, but but put it in a way that freedom with focus is kind of, I think, the difference between a free-for-all and a workshop is, yes, you have the freedom and you have choice, but this is kind of where our focus is. This is where our learning is right now. And I think that is that I think that's one of the fundamental key concepts to kind of ingrain yourself in and, and continuously refresh and ask, you know, am I putting in the work myself to get them to where they need to be? Is my classroom set up in a way to where I can confer with them regularly to keep them um, relatively you know, on track to be where they need to be? Are my lessons being effective enough? Do I have enough data to prove that my lessons are being effective enough? And then are we showing students how to take that and transfer it over? And I think that all of that works into this freedom. So there, there, there's so many layers to this and you really have to be on your game in terms of being a constant watcher of your workshop to be, you know, is everything I'm doing right now working or is it not? And, uh, pivoting when you need to pivot and doubling down, we need to double down. I think all works into, uh, not just having freedom, but having freedom within bounds that actually lead to deep learning. Well, I just have to tell you that what you just said is supported by our theorists. <laughs> so that one was with the cognitivisms. And um, so what you, you shared with us, just for all of those who are really nerdy about theory, uh, is goal orientation theory, which examines individuals' cognitive motives, and self-determination theory which uh, is where you self-determine your own goal so that the learner has some sort of control, which makes them want to uh, work harder. So I don't know. Just want to let you know that what you just said is supported by educational theory. Just say, just saying, just saying about that. So for those of you who want to know, that's what's interesting about this because I, I, you know, I couldn't have cited that. But the, the, the interesting thing about workshop and doing this is that when you really invest and you start experimenting with what works, what doesn't work, you know, the reason why the research shows certain things is because the it's research, right? It's it's done with real people, right. with real humans. So if you're doing it, you know, I probably went about it the hard way. I could have read more research and found <laughs> those things. And I do a little bit, right? I have read quite a bit and I've, I, I consider myself well read on pedagogy and, and learning mm-hmm. theory and stuff like that. But you, you don't know what you don't know, right? And I, I think that, uh, I don't know, I, for people that do not feel like this is it, it, it's not rigorous that kids 
really need pure direct instruction and, and direct instruction in a way that this is how you write an essay. This is how you write a poem. This is how you do this. Um, you know, I feel like the, the teacher is doing more of the work and then those same educators that kind of follow that mindset tend to kind of be in this artificial rigor realm of, you know, it has to be done this way and I'm going to deduct points. And, you know, if you're not capitalizing, you know, I, I am aware of a teacher that after Christmas takes off points for every time you do not capitalize I in a sentence on a paper. Um, and I'm just like, if they're still doing that willingly, in your class after Christmas, whose failure is that? <laughs> so that's, I, you know, that's just I my question. Uh huh. Well, I mean, but but if it was meaningful work, and what I mean by that is that if they were going to publish that piece, and their best friend was going to read it out in public, I guarantee you those eyes would be capitalized if it was important to them. So. Um, I just think you're right. I think it has to do with how we frame our assignments and how we frame our our actual uh, environment in which the students work. And I think that's where most of the work is. Uh, I do know that one of the, what is it, the four C's, communication, uh, you know, that people are working, looking for the 21st century skills. All of a sudden I lost some of them in my head, but, you know, um, but communication, but creativity is one of them, uh, you know, solving problems, those kinds of things, but I got it right here. Collaboration, critical thinking, critical Critical thinking, thinking, collaboration, collaboration, creativity, creativity. and communication, communication. So I had them almost in my head, not maybe in the right order, but it's those, those four things. If that's what they're looking for, then the, what we're talking about is the type of rigor that helps these students do these things. Does that make sense? Yeah. In other words, uh, solving those problems, being creative about how they solve them, giving them time to do the solving, giving them, uh, you know, work that they appreciate, uh, communicating their work to others, that kind of stuff, I think is very important. And I think you hit on that. So I don't know where else I was going with that. I guess I just wanted to let y'all know I need four C's. (laughs) Well, and with the four C's, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of the Craft the Draft podcast. Hopefully we address this conversation. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Is freedom less rigorous? Did we defend our point or did did we not give enough credit to people that are a little bit more strict? Is my term artificial rigor great use or is it bad? Let us know. (laughs) Uh, in any way you can, you can DM us. You can follow us on Facebook at craft the draft. You can find us at craft the draft workshop.com. We release a podcast every single Friday. So if you're new, hit subscribe. So you don't miss an episode. If you enjoyed this episode, share it, hit that rating in your podcast app. We know we see the data. The, the podcast is growing very steadily, which means you guys are sharing and listening regularly. So we support, or we thank all of you for your support and listening to this, uh, you know, little niche podcast focused on English and literacy and whatnot. If you have a question, you can submit a question over there at craftandraftworkshop.com. That's Pam Ochoa. I'm Jacob Chastain and know that we are here for you. <laughs> <laughs>